So this is um, the next installment of Journal Watch. I know you guys were waiting for this. All right. So the first article, this deals with people that come in with brain injuries, like our trauma patients, but they have a super small intracranial bleed. Do we need to admit them? So you know when you have a patient that comes in and they have like a two millimeter bleed or something, and neurosurgeon's like, we're not going to do anything. And the attending's like, well, we can't send them home. And then we have to fight with neurology to take the patient. So that's basically what the study's looking at. So some background information is that about 1.4 million suffer traumatic brain injury per year. And in this study, they classified whether it was severe, moderate, or mild by their GCS scores. And this study was, took place in Switzerland, and their protocol is this. They, a neurosurgeon must be formally consulted if there's any kind of intracranial bleed. Patients are admitted for 24-hour observations and then discharge instructions, um, instruct the patient to see their primary care physician within the 24 hours and contact daily for two weeks. And then any of their family members and stuff, they have like direct emergency numbers. So what the authors are saying is that these routinely admitted patients for observation, it's not cost effective, it doesn't reduce the morbidity or mortality. And they're saying a specific group of patients can be discharged from the hospital without this 24-hour uh, observation. It was a retrospective analysis. It was over two years. It, it has to follow this criteria of having a minor head injury with a GCS of 13 to 15 and intracranial bleeds that were less than 5 millimeters. The exclusion criteria was, of course, if it was greater than 5 millimeters or if they had multiple bleeds or if they had some kind of inherent coagulopathy, they were on anticoagulation therapy, if they were drunk, um, and then multiple associated injuries. <laughs> and if there was n no one to observe them at home or if they live greater than an hour away. <laughs> so the results were um, about 1,000 patients were had isolated head injuries and admitted to the ED. 110 of those patients actually fit in the criteria that they were looking at. And this was just uh, showing that most of them were intracranial bleeds, intracerebral bleeds. So 100% regained their GCS of 15 within two hours, and they were fine for the 24 hours. Zero patients exhibited any delayed deterioration. There were no readmissions and no repeat CT scans were done. 
So they are stating, their conclusions were that standard 24 observations may not be required for adults with a single intracranial bleed less than five millimeters and all those th things I just talked about before. But of course you have to remember it's based on the clinical picture, but this could potentially reduce unnecessary hospitalizations and ED beds because these admissions, they didn't influence like further management. And they also recommended standardized discharge instructions. Any questions? No? Was it the ED doctor decided to discharge or is it the neurosurgeon? What do you mean? Like, when did they discuss that? That it should be the neurosurgeon's call? To admit them? Or yeah. Well, so they're all admitted. Right. And but then they looked at those people that were admitted. Did they mention that? Oh, like who should decide? Oh, yeah. the ED physician. Like, okay. you don't have to call the neurosurgeon. Yeah. Okay, so this That's is. That's really great, except you're women and Yeah. <laughs> Did your attending know you discharged him? <laughs> okay, so this is um, another one article from Journal Watch. This is talking about a single hypotensive blood pressure during a trauma run. Does that indicate like there's a potential for that patient to have a like bad outcome? Did you give me this article? Yeah. Okay. Dr. Koenig and Dr. Burns give me a lot of these articles or help me. So they were looking at um, these blood pressures that are frequently ignored or considered to be erroneous. They hypothesized that a single blood pressure may s signify like severe injuries that will need immediate intervention. So they looked at, they, there have been studies that have shown that there's like this transient hypotension during pre-hospital care um, or in the SICU that predicts severe injury and poor outcome. So they wanted to determine the actual like BP cutoff value where we would um, take this into account. This was a prospective observational study. It was based on trauma patients. So it was over six months. They were looking at uh, systolic blood pressure less than 110. There's the age range. They excluded transfers from outside hospital if they were injured greater than two hours prior to ED arrival. And if they were managed initially by ED staff, I'm not sure, I didn't really understand that one, um, and isolated pre-hospital hypotension less than 19. So about 140 patients, and they compared people, so their cutoff point was 105. So they looked at people that had systolic blood pressures of less than 105 and those greater. Those that were less than 105, 38% underwent some kind of endovascular procedure or immediate therapeutic operative procedure. 54% uh, compared to 25% were actually admitted to the SICU and people with the systolic blood pressure less than 105 actually had an <coughs> average hospital stay of around eight days compared to four. So, and then they also stayed, of course you need to look at independent predictors that you know, may need interventions such as like a gunshot wound and stuff. So they recommend that a systolic blood pressure less than 105 um, shouldn't be ignored or dismissed. Um, a big flaw that I thought with this article was that it was single-blinded, so the trauma nurses were blinded to their role in the study. So they may have gotten a read that was less than 105 and just repeated it because they were like, oh, this person looks too good, that doesn't seem right, and then just never recorded it, and then those people weren't included. You look confused. I'm just thinking about it. 
Oh, okay. These people all had one blood pressure reading that was like 100, mm-hmm. and then <coughs> they had, that was it. Then their mm-hmm. blood pressure went back to... Yeah, then it was fine. Yeah. And so what is our cutoff right now for a critical? 90? To make it a critical cutoff. 90. 90 is our. So this is saying that maybe it should be. But the pro- this, I think this study looked at an aberration, so they said maybe it should be higher. You're right. Right. But, but it's also saying, oh, it was... We just had one reading, but everything else is fine. So they call when they call it in, they may not call it in as um, an initial reading of 90. They may call it in as initial reading of 110 because they didn't really believe it. Now, I, I think you're missing the, the point is that you need to know whether the patient was hypotensive in the field. I don't know what that exact number is. I think you have to take it within the overall setting of what the patient's normal blood pressure is and what the mechanism is and something that fits. But the point is, in many cases, there is a documented reading of hypotension in the field, however you end up defining hypotension, and that doesn't necessarily get communicated to us. And by the time the patient arrives at the trauma bay, the blood pressure is normal. So this is saying you really got to pay attention to those pre-hospital vital signs and in the right setting, a major trauma patient, even a single low reading is predictive, predictive of badness. So a lot of times you don't really get the story. You walk into the room a few minutes later, whatever. And the point is, you need to know: was there ever a low blood pressure? That's why I'll document on my chart vital signs stable in the field or not if they weren't, and ask the paramedics about that because this study and others have shown this too. Show that even one low reading can be really important. Probably can be extrapolated to medical patients. I mean, more often than not, we see this in medical patients where there's one heart rate yeah. that was 40 or a blood pressure that was hypotensive. And we're like, well, I don't know. They've been here for three hours. We haven't seen anything. And then we're, we're hedging on whether or not we should admit them. And, you know, I, I'm, we haven't seen the study yet, but I'm sure uh, there's some badness behind that. So you would attribute that to, you know, the cuff? That's what this is saying. Yeah. They're trying to make excuses for it, but you can't. What, what are EMTs and paramedics taught? Do they give you, or what is the protocol? Do they give you the initial? Do they give you the worst um, vital to, to triage? Oh, whether okay. triage is or EMS they're, they're supposed to give you what their initial vitals of the patient were. And then they record every five minutes, right. they record what they get. So ideally, they're supposed to not select. You know, remember, these guys basically have high school education. So fortunately, what they're supposed to do and what they do do are sometimes not the same. If, if you listen to the paramedic reports and keep an eye out for this on, on the trauma patients, I, th- I think it's important on the medical patients too, but it's a little bit more complicated. Uh, and this study was really focused on trauma patients. Usually, if you listen to the report, they <coughs> call you low blood pressure. But if you're not listening, if you're doing something else or talking, you may not hear that. And the other way to find it is to look at the actual run sheet. And as Carl said, you can see the list of all the different blood pressures. But the majority of paramedics are going to tell you when there was a low blood pressure because they know this. Okay. To me, this is kind of like that child who's under six weeks, and mom says, yes, I took the temperature, and it was 38.9 at home. 
So you and there's they come to the ED and they're not febrile. I'm like, are you sure it's 38.9? Yes, it was 38.9. Well, that was at home. How do you know that was? Blah, blah, blah. And then you just go, well, that was at home. Here it's not, so I'm not going to do a full cut sore. That's a, I think that's kind of a mistake because you're trying to make an excuse not to do, be cautious. And we're in the business of being cautious. Well, there's also studies to support that they're more likely to be right than wrong. They're not 100 percent. They say 39. Sometimes it isn't, but most of the time, 70 percent of the time, <coughs> it is. And that's high enough for me. 70 percent accuracy in a, an under six week year. I'll, I'll take the chance. I'll take the hit on the 30 percent that didn't have it. Because you know, you want to you uh, send everybody home and have seven die, or do you want to admit everybody and have only 30 percent of them? Next one. Um, so this article is about the elderly people who are taking warfarin therapy, and then they come in and they get like an antibiotic for a UTI. And does that cause or increase their risk for hemorrhage? The reason I looked at this article is because I had a patient with Becker, and he was on warfarin, and he had a UTI, and we were trying to decide like what kind of antibiotic. So it actually was studied. So warfarin has a narrow therapeutic index, right? And you need to take into consideration the vitamin K status, and there's multiple drug interactions. So UTI is the second most common infection among older people. So the antibiotics used to treat UTI, they actually inhibit metabolism of warfarin, and they can, dis they can disrupt the gut flora, so that reduces the intestinal vitamin K synthesis. And they can inhibit this P450 enzyme, so overall it can increase the risk of hemorrhage. So the purpose of this study was to examine the risk of an upper GI bleed in older patients receiving warfarin and antibiotics for UTI with a focus on Bactrim. They did look at other antibiotics, but the main one they were looking at was Bactrim. So this is a case control study. It was over 10 years. It was in Canada. You had to be older than 65 years. You had to be on warfarin for at least six months. So you were excluded if you stop the warfarin or hospitalized with a hemorrhage during that six months of treatment or if you receive more than one of the study antibiotics. And each case had a matched control subject. So what they would look at is the index date, and they define the index date as the day the patient was hospitalized with the upper GI bleed. So that means the patient had been on warfarin for six months at least, and then they were hospitalized. And then they looked the preceding 14 days where they put on any antibiotic prescription. So there are about 130,000 patients on warfarin. About 45,000 had were on one of the study antibiotics, and specifically about 9,700 were on Factrum. Out of those, about 2,000 patients were hospitalized for upper GI bleed, and what they found was that it was four times more likely to have received Factrum within 14 days of admission, and Cipro had a twofold increase whereas the other ones, there was no statistical significant difference. And about 10% died before discharge. Right, right, right. They look back, yeah. So the limitations and stuff is that there's a lot of confounders that they couldn't take into account, such as they could have used non-prescription drugs, foods, herbal supplements, like other things, you know, that would have affected or contributed to the bleed. 
Um, and then there was no information on the indication for antibiotic treatment, so the Bactrim could have been for who knows what. Um, and then they didn't measure like the anticoagulation status, if they were properly anticoagulated or not. But what they're saying is that older patients receiving warfarin, so Bactrim has a significantly higher risk of upper GI bleeding, so that just to think about it and perhaps, perhaps like prescribe an alternative, alternative antibiotic. But if you are gonna prescribe it, then just like close monitoring and maybe they should just like not take one of their um, warfarin doses. Yeah, I agree. We actually sent that patient home with the Bactrim and stuff. So I think, so remember, these are just articles I'm presenting. It's not like these you should just take into practice. It's to just have a rapport and like discussion about them. I think the biggest take home point is to think about drug interactions, mm -hmm. which we're not that good at thinking about and can be very complicated. And Coumadin is, no, is notorious for being one mm -hmm. of the I completely agree because when we were giving him the prescription, it wasn't until an afterthought. We were like, oh, wait a second, he's on Coumadin. Does this interact? And we would have to go look it up, and we were like looking at different alternatives and stuff. So. You know, Sin, I don't know if you have any on your list, but there's been some other studies just looking at the percentage of patients coming to the emergency department with complaints related to or directly due to drug drug interactions. It's pretty high. Yeah. Anything else? Next one. All right, so this is about digital anesthesia, one injection or two. So whenever we have like an injury of the finger and stuff, we often do digital nerve blocks. So this article is looking at whether a single injection could be used as opposed to the traditional two injection digital nerve block. All the parents have left the building. <laughs> <laughs> Some background information is that the most common technique is this, uh, the two injection method. So basically you, you would inject here and here, right, for the finger that you're going to be using. There's also a transthecal method where you actually inject in the flexor tendon sheath. That's not really advised because they say it can cause trauma to the sheath, it can be painful and it's difficult to teach. And the other method is this subcutaneous one where actually it's just one injection of the finger base at the base of the digit. 
So here are some pictures that show what they're talking about for this single method. Okay, so this was a single blinded prospective randomized controlled multicenter trial. You had to be greater than 16 years old, and they're talking about injuries that are distal to the DIP. So nothing proximal to it, because with this method where you use only one injection, it doesn't cover the dorsal branches of the nerve. Okay, so only if it's like this portion. And they used a computer-generated randomization to decide on the groups, and the control group was the two digit um, a two injection because that's currently what we use and they excluded anybody with injuries proximal to the DIP if they had any distracting injuries multiple finger injuries or if they were psychotic and mental illness <laughs> yeah. so the way they went about it is that there was these two clinicians so one of the <coughs> clinicians would consent and then the clinician number two would go in and per perform whatever nerve block he had in his envelope, so either the one injection or the two injection. And then he would cover the injection site with gauze, and he would make sure there was no like bleeding on the gauze or any, to give any kind of hint. And then clinician one would go back in at a, five minutes, and he would test if they still felt any sensation with a 25-gauge needle at the tip. And if they didn't, then it was considered successful. If they did, then he would come back in in 10 minutes and then check again. The, other thing they looked at was also distress scores and clinician satisfaction scores. So the outcomes measured, the primary one being whether it was successfully anesthetized, and the secondary was the patient distress, clinical satisfaction, and uh, complications. So they actually only had 76 patients. Uh, they're pretty evenly split between the two. They did lose five patients because of missing data. So what they found out is that five minutes, 76% were successfully, um, had no sensation in the single injection versus 65 in the, having the two injections, but it didn't reach any statistical significance. At 10 minutes, it was 89% versus 82%. That also didn't reach any statistical significance, but <clears throat> neither group reported any complications. As for the distress scores, they were lower in the single injection group, but also did not reach reach any statistical significance. The only thing that did reach statistical significance was the clinician satisfaction scores. They were higher with a single injection. So this was initially intended for about 500 patients. For some reason, it was just really difficult for them to recruit 500 patients. I'm not really sure why, but some of the reasons they gave was just that perhaps it, injuries like distal to the DIP or their exclusion criteria was just so um, specific they weren't able to capture that many patients. Also perhaps uh, because the government right now has a lot of target times or goals that AD departments have to ha have that prevented staff from enrolling the patients. But what they conclude is that the single injection is as, a, in, as a effective as the two method injection for injuries distal to the DIP and that the clinician satisfaction scores were statistically significant. They say overall the results favor the single approach, and they think that if there was a larger sample size, then the results would have reached a statistical significance. So, And some departments already use it as a standard of practice for injuries past the DIP. Sounds pretty straightforward. Any questions? Okay, I think I Oh, really? It hurts to do that. Oh. The needle in. Yeah. So, I mean, what I teach 
So I will. Yeah, they actually use the bupivacaine so in this study. I think that's actually been becoming more of the standard practice to use bupivacaine, but we use the lidocaine for some reason. Do we have bupivacaine in the pictures, or would we have to wait a half an hour for it to confirm? Question. <laughs> because I think it'd be I think helpful. I think we should use bupivacaine. You have to wait. I've done a oral for mouth injection. You have to order it from pharmacy. Because I think it'd be better for the patient. I mean, they'd be, you know, be anesthetized for longer periods. Yeah. Like, they'd go home and still be anesthetized. And be, no matter what time you can get to it. Yeah, that's definitely true for teeth. I don't know for fingers because it's probably individualized. It feels kind of weird to have it all numb too. Yeah, so yeah, sorry, in this study they did use bupivacaine because they were saying, I guess the literature now supports that as being like the standard one, so. Okay. I guess and of we'll. Of course, make sure you document the sensation before. <laughs> Okay, I'll probably go through one more since our speaker is here. Okay. Um, so, oh, okay, well, so this one's an, uh, kind of a novel method to, <laughs> to place a, a gastric tube. So the reason I chose this one is because after the intubation, you know, which should probably be the hardest part, like sometimes I have problems like putting in the gastric tube and it gets curled up and coiled and I get frustrated. So they're saying that, um, actually other people have found this frustrating too, so that made me feel better. Um, so patients, uh, of course, the ones we deal with, they're unable to swallow because they're usually sedated or paralyzed. You have the inflated cup in the proximal trachea, and it usually coils in the oral cavity, and then it's blinded. So you don't even know like what you did wrong, and then you just keep doing the same wrong thing. So the modification to this would be to use a directional maneuvering tube tip. So this one was also super small. There was only 10 patients. It was oral or nasal gastric tube. It was over three months. Um, and it had to be confirmed by any two of these methods, whether it was in the correct place. So what they did is they just took a standard gastric tube, but they heated it. Um, I'm not sure how they heated it, but they formed this little angle at the end. It's similar to like the distal end of a bougie. So when you insert it, uh, after you lubricate it, you insert it with the angle caudally. So you're going to traverse the posterior nasopharyngeal angle. And then as you go into the oropharynx, then you're going to turn it posteriorly. So you can see that it's posterior. So, um, and then you advance the tube into the esophagus. So this one, they did eight nasal and two orals. There was a 90% uh, success rate. Only 10% had, 10% failed, which is like one out of 10. And when they looked in with the laryngoscope, they saw that it was um, impacted at the tip when the sinus is there. 
So they just withdrew it. Apparently, it wasn't a true posterior. So they just had to turn it a little bit more, and then it successfully advanced. So the discussion for this one is that the weak point of the tube is at the end where you see all those holes, like the last six centimeters. Um, they have described other manipulations, like neck elevation or lateral neck pressure. But they're saying that this method that they describe um, can be an easier way to be able to successfully place a gastric tube. James? Yep. You want? Yeah, I would just wait. That's it. Yeah, should be good. Okay. Five minutes. Okay. All right. Thank you. I'm